This is the 14th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society for Hematology. This podcast covers the guidelines on the diagnosis, investigation, and initial treatment of myeloma. This podcast is being recorded over Zoom due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and we apologize for any loss in sound quality that may occur. My name is Jonathan Siv. I'm a haematology consultant at University College London Hospital, where I'm the clinical service lead for myeloma and plasma cell disorders. This is an updated guideline covering myeloma, specifically diagnosis, investigation, and initial treatment. And it's an update on the previous guideline, which was from 2005. This guideline was written with my colleagues from the United Kingdom Myeloma Forum, Kirsty Cuthill from King's College Hospital London, Hannah Hunter from University Hospitals Plymouth, Madge Kazmi from Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital London, Guy Pratt from University Hospitals Birmingham, and Dean Smith from Nottingham University Hospitals. So the full title of the guideline is Guidelines on the Diagnosis, Investigation and Initial Treatment of Myeloma. I'm going to focus on three areas that we cover in the guidelines. Firstly, the initial investigation and diagnosis of myeloma. Secondly, the choice of first-line treatment for myeloma. And thirdly, post-treatment consolidation strategies. I'm going to start off talking about investigation and diagnosis. So there have been a number of important changes that have occurred since the last edition of this guidelines came out in 2005. First of all, there's been the updates to the diagnostic criteria that were formalised in the 2014 International Myeloma Working Group paper. So as previously, for a diagnosis of myeloma, we need to have a demonstration of a clonal plasma cell infiltration. This is almost always done on a bone marrow aspirate and trephine, but occasionally the diagnosis will be made on either a bony or a soft tissue plasma cytoma. In addition to demonstration of histology, however, there's a need to demonstrate this evidence of end organ damage. So the classic four features of end organ damage were known as the CRAB criteria. C for elevated calcium levels, R for renal impairment, A for anemia, and B for bone lesions. And this has been specifically formalized as the presence of more than one or more lytic bone lesions on either an X-ray, a CT scan, or a CT PET scan. The 2014 updated criteria have added three biomarker-defined um, criteria that are also now sufficient for a myeloma diagnosis. These are features that are known to be a high risk for the progression to myeloma within a short time period. So those are the presence of greater than or equal to 60% plasma cell infiltration on the bone marrow, the involved to uninvolved light chain ratio of greater than or equal to 100, and the presence of greater than two, greater than or equal to two focal lesions on an MRI scan. So of note, that's lesions on an MRI scan, even in the absence of any lesions that were picked up on CT or plain X-ray. If you put all of that together, that's sometimes known as, as the slim crab criteria. So S is for 60% infiltration on the marrow, LI is for light chain involvement, and M is for MRI findings. So we've included that as a, a new diagnostic criteria, which, which we agree with and should be part of standard myeloma diagnostic procedures. The second area that I wanted to focus on was the increased standardization of the use of cytogenetic testing. 
So this would be done by fish cytogenetics on the initial diagnostic bone marrow. There's a number of features that we recommend are tested for standardly in all new myeloma diagnoses, specifically the translocations T414, T1114, and T1416, and also the cytogenetic abnormalities, loss of 17P, gain of 1Q, and loss of 1P. These are done for a number of reasons. First of all, they've got prognostic significance, and they've now been incorporated into revised ISS criteria for staging myeloma. In addition, some of these cytogenetic abnormalities can be used to inform choice of treatment, specifically presence of high-risk cytogenetics, such as T414 or loss of 17P, would push you into the use of a proteasome inhibitor-based induction therapy, specifically bortezomib as the most likely agent. The other area where there's increasing evidence that its use might help inform treatment would be the presence of the T1114 translocation. There's evidence that BCL2 inhibitors such as venetoclax might play a role in the treatment of these patients. And although these drugs might not be used in the induction stage, it's important to have that information documented at the beginning to inform treatment decisions later on, trial enrollment later on. Finally, we've recommended the routine incorporation of these cytogenetic abnormalities into the staging system, so as well as the ISS staging system, which uses beta-2 microglobulin and albumin levels, the presence of cytogenetics, specifically the high-risk features T414, T1416, and 17P deletion, should be incorporated into that to make the revised ISS staging criteria, which also include the use of LDH or lactate dehydrogenase to put patients into the highest risk group. The second area that I wanted to focus on was the choice of initial chemotherapy treatment. This can be a fairly complex area because there's an increasing number of agents that are available to use and they can be put into all manner of different combinations which can be confusing to um, distinguish. What we started off doing was um, looking at some principles that can be used for making treatment decisions. So, for example, it's important to make a distinction as to whether a patient is likely to be fit for an autologous stem cell transplant later on or not. If somebody is going to be fit for an autologous stem cell transplant, we want to avoid the use of melphalan, which could affect the stem cell harvest. And we would also recommend limiting the use of lenalidomide to between four or a maximum of six cycles before a planned stem cell harvest. It's important also to see how frail patients are. We will often make an end-of-the-bed assessment, but there's increasing evidence that use of formal frailty scores can be a very useful way of choosing appropriate treatment regimens. It's also important to take into account the side effect profiles of the different agents which are being used and look at the aims of treatment overall. In general, the aims of treatment are to prolong progression-free survival and overall survival, but it's especially important to remember the quality of life issues, especially in older patients given that myeloma is generally not a curable condition. The elephant in the room, which is often not discussed in these guidelines, is funding issues. So we are aware that there are variations in funding, both between countries and also even within the UK, between the regions of the UK. These change over time fairly rapidly, with different funding streams becoming available, both through NICE and the Cancer Drugs Fund. We've taken the view in these guidelines that we're making recommendations on best practice, we hope that um, funding streams will catch up with those over time, but we are aware that um, the drugs that we're able to deliver will vary 
and these the funding which is available at any given time needs to be taken into account to make a pragmatic choice. We've then gone on to outline the major drug classes which are available in myeloma. So I'm sure you're aware these are the proteasome inhibitors, predominantly bortezomib and carfilzomib. Ixazomib is an oral proteasome inhibitor and has got less evidence for its use in the frontline setting. Immunomodulatory drugs or IMIDs, such as thalidomide, lenalidomide, and pomalidomide, are widely used. There's still a strong role for alkylating agents, such as cyclophosphamide and melphalan, and steroids incorporated into almost all induction chemotherapy. Predominantly in the UK, we are using dexamethasone and prednisolone. The final drug class, which is becoming increasingly important, is monoclonal antibodies, specifically the CD38 monoclonal antibodies. The prime agent in this class at the moment is daratumumab. Much of the evidence for the use of daratumumab came to light after the literature review for these guidelines, but it's increasingly being used in upfront settings, and we expect it to be incorporated into these in the near future. So in terms of treatment selection, there are a few principles that can be used in terms of making our choices. There's a clear advantage of proteasome inhibitor-based treatments over those which do not contain proteasome inhibitors. This has been fairly clear in extensions in both progression of free survival and overall survival, such as in the VRD versus RD study produced by the SWOG group a few years ago. Most of the data that's available is using bortezomib, which there's quite wide experience of now in the UK, especially using it on a subcutaneous rather than intravenous basis and using it for most indications on a weekly rather than bi-weekly basis. There's a bit less evidence for the use of carfilzomib in this setting. Carfilzomib is an intravenous proteasome inhibitor, which has got a slightly different toxicity profile. The other agent, oral ixazomib, has got less evidence, and we have not recommended its use in routine settings. The second point to make is the addition of a third agent to a proteasome inhibitor and steroid backbone. Imids are the most commonly used agent. Lenalidomide has probably got the best toxicity profile and is most tolerable. But at the present time in the UK, thalidomide is more commonly used for induction treatment for transplant eligible patients. For patients who can't receive an IMID, then an alkylating agent such as cyclophosphamide is often a good alternative, and there's good evidence for the use of VCD for patients in whom thalidomide is not an appropriate treatment. We've also talked about the use of non proteasome inhibitor based induction therapy. So, this may well be an appropriate and useful option in certain situations, specifically for patients who are older, you may want to avoid them coming up to the day unit for intravenous or subcutaneous therapies. It's often quite attractive in patients who don't have those high-risk cytogenetic features and whom you might feel more comfortable using a non-proteasome inhibitor-based treatment. The third area that I wanted to draw out from the guidelines was the use of different post-induction consolidation treatments which are available. So the commonest of these is the use of an autologous stem cell transplantation. This is a treatment that's been available for many years now and has shown to improve both progression-free survival and in some studies at least overall survival as well. There's been an ongoing question about its role in the area of so-called novel agents, which aren't that novel anymore, but I think the evidence still demonstrates that it does have an important role to play and we continue to recommend this as standard treatment patients who are fit enough to receive an autologous stem cell transplant. There's some evidence that this could be safely delayed in certain patients, but we continue to recommend the use of autologous stem cell transplant in this setting. There's some evidence that delaying the transplant to a later point 
could be safe, and this may be an option for certain patients, but upfront transplant is still the easiest and safest point at which to deliver it. In terms of conditioning, melphalan remains the standard of care at 200 milligrams per meter squared. Although other conditioning regimens have been trialed, nothing really has been shown to be demonstrably superior. The dose can be safely reduced from 200 milligrams per meter squared to 140 milligrams per meter squared if there are concerns about frailty or renal impairment, for example. Previously, there was a fairly hard cutoff of 65 years old for proceeding to an autologous stem cell transplant. With increasing experience, I think we have recommended that there is no absolute age cutoff, and patients over the age of the over the age of 65 up to their 70s can be safely transplanted as long as they're fit and appropriate precautions are taken. The next areas I wanted to talk about were non-transplant options for post-induction consolidation. Consolidation chemotherapy is defined as a fixed duration of a generally high-dose treatment for a discrete number of courses after an autologous transplant. For example, the use of VRD chemotherapy has been examined in a number of trials. The evidence here was less strong, and we were unable to recommend this as a routine practice, although there may be a role in patients who've had suboptimal induction chemotherapy. Maintenance chemotherapy is the ongoing delivery of treatment post-transplant. And here the evidence is stronger, specifically in the use of lenalidomide, which has been shown to increase both progression-free survival and overall survival. This has recently been approved for UK funding post-transplant, which is an exciting improvement in the treatment options that we have available. The use of bortezomib in high-risk disease as a maintenance strategy has also been examined. And although the evidence is less strong, it may be a clinical option for patients who've got known high-risk disease. Finally, there have been several studies looking at the use of tandem autologous stem cell transplants, in which patients receive a second transplant between three to six months after their initial autologous stem cell transplant. Again, trial evidence varies, but there seems to be a role to consider it at least as a clinical option in patients who've got high-risk disease. The final area that we reviewed was the role of allogeneic transplantation as a consolidation strategy. This is obviously a more controversial area with some specialists saying there's no role for transplants, but we feel that there's a clear evidence of a graft versus myeloma effect. In young patients with high-risk disease, it could be considered as a, as a clinical option. The best time to consider an allogeneic transplant would be after achievement of a good response and consolidation with an autologous transplant and with the use of a reduced intensity transplant. This auto-RIC allo approach is probably the best time at which a transplant could be used. And in patients in whom this would be considered an option, we strongly recommend referral to a specialist transplantation centre for discussion about the pros and cons of this procedure. So I hope you found this a useful overview of the topics covered. For full information, I'd recommend you read the guidelines in full, which are available in the British Journal of Hematology and on the BSH website. There's also a full literature review and tables covering all of the trials that I've discussed in this podcast and that are covered in the guidelines. Thank you again for listening. Apologies if there have been any dropouts due to sound quality using Zoom to create this podcast. I'd invite you to visit the BSH website to listen to more exciting podcasts from the British Society of Hematology about various important guidelines that are being produced.